The CMS and FDA are on the move, setting lofty targets to modernize both their agencies and the healthcare system. Welcome to the Dynamic High Five podcast and this episode of Agencies in Action. I'm Mindy McGrath, healthcare industry lead and public health sector advisor, and I'm joined by my friends, co-hosts, and fellow healthcare industry enthusiasts, Ryan Hummel, executive at Dynamic, and Mike Catone, manager at Dynamic. Hey, everybody. Just a reminder that the Vynamic High Five podcast is our take on specific healthcare industry topics that are real relevant and worth discussing. FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb has not been shy in touting his lofty goals for modernizing the FDA and using all the tools in his toolkit to address critical issues in the interest of public health, including the soaring price of medicines. Meanwhile, his counterpart for the CMS, Dr. Seema Verma, is also actively making changes and advancing efforts around value-driven care. Today, we will break down various moves that both agencies are proposing and the impact on healthcare sectors. And stick around for our parting thought. It's that interesting thing that we've seen, heard, or read that we also want to share with you. Hey, so let's kick things off a little uh, GabFest topic. We were When we were preparing for the, the content of this, we were talking about how the FDA and the CMS are throwing a lot of things at us. And so we're always having to learn new things and understand the nuances. And so my question for you all, Mike, Mindy, myself, is tell me something you learned this week. One of the more uh, interesting things I learned this week was how the Alaskan government actually cut down on the number of fishing injuries and fishing deaths during halibut season by changing the fishing period. It used to be a 24-hour frenzy of fishing where dock hands would rush the docks and really just try and hop on as many boats as possible you had boats sinking and just going out in terrible weather and they changed it from that system to a quantity of fish that you were licensed to go out and fish and you had the entire season to actually fish that quantity so it helped reduce overfishing and had a pretty good public health outcome as well reducing injuries and deaths from from that actual fishing expedition yeah so really a public health benefit yeah, yeah. Yeah, so mine is um, maybe not as noble in terms of what I learned this week, but um, I actually learned how to use a chainsaw so that I could cut down some trees in my backyard. That's fantastic. I actually want to go back to kind of a nature uh, topic. I've been watching the new planet Earth on, on, on my iPad, and I just learned about the grasslands. So what was really remarkable about the grasslands is, I didn't realize this, but first of all, grass is the one of the most resilient plants in the universe. Um, and also, one third of the land in the world is covered by this resilient plant grass. Okay, so where do we start? There has been a ton of activity within the Beltway. Um, I think maybe the best place for us to start is to talk about what's going on with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. The CMS recently released their annual Medicare payment update proposal, and it was full of some really interesting information. The headliner that most industry insiders are talking about is really the makeover that meaningful use is receiving, and that includes less reporting requirements and actually a brand new name. So instead of being called meaningful use, which I think has had a relatively uh, nebulous term to a lot of industry insiders in terms of how do you define what meaningful use actually is? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, To now a new name, which is promoting interoperability. I really like the, the new name of promoting interoperability because I really feel like it gives 
all the players in the industry is a guidepost uh, where we want to head collectively. And I think achieving meaningful steps toward true interoperability is something that we can measure and reflect on and understand how we're progressing. Yeah, and I completely agree with you. I mean, the title seems to reflect, I think, also the administration's focus on, one, reducing the burdens while really emphasizing the importance of data sharing across providers. I mean, this revamp of meaningful use is accompanied by some major reduction in terms of the number of measures that hospitals will need to report as part of the mandatory program. Um, that was first initiated way back in, in 2009, 2010, when we were first trying to get clinicians to really adopt electronic health records. I think CMS is also provo pro uh, proposing that in terms of like propelling this idea of interoperability, they're willing to give up some of the requirements that had historically been a part of the Meaningful Use Program um, based on what the American Hospital Association or the AHA uh, said in response to this proposal, they actually are welcoming some of these proposed changes, which um, is not always that typical. The norm, yeah. Right. So I'm curious, what stood out to you in the Medicare payment update proposal? Uh, one thing I'll say is it, it sounds to me like we should rename the CMS to continue to modify stuff because we've seen lots of changes and uh, kind of every week we hear something new that they're changing. And, and a lot of it's been good, advantageous stuff if you talk to the provider world. But beyond the name change, another proposed change to the former Meaningful Use Program that was interesting is the scoring methodology that's being proposed. It really closely resembles part of the macro program or in, within the macro program, quality payment program. And this makes sense uh, because it's sharing of information is one of the weighted domains of the MIPS track of MACRA under the quality payment program. And another aspect of the proposal that stood out, uh, for me anyway, is the annual Medicare payment rate increase. Uh, and that is proposed next year in 2019 to be at $4 billion, which is a large increase from $2.4 billion in 2018. So that means that providers could be receiving a pay raise and to some, some good news about this proposal. The headline for me that really stood out was the focus on price transparency from CMS. They're really encouraging hospitals to be more transparent about their pricing by requiring to post the cost of the services online. And the agency has been working on this for a while, and it, it's good to see some movement. They want to require hospitals to publish the actual list of their standard charges online in a machine-readable format and to update that information at least once a year. The variation in cost is really a significant issue regionally, but even among neighboring zip codes. So CMS wants to provide patients with more upfront understanding of what cost variation actually looks like. I can't imagine, honestly, how that gets implemented. I bet that the proposed change um, is going to receive significant pushback. Uh, it's the first thing I thought of, too, knowing that that's going to be very difficult. <laughs> yeah. I, I can also con envision this being really complicated and controversial to implement um, just because of the variation that you see in contracting and where do you start? Like which price point do you start well, at? I don't think hospitals know what the price point is. So it's going to, in many cases, so it's going to be very difficult. Yeah. I don't think like something like char posting the inflated retail prices that are on a hospital's charge master. I don't really think that's, that's the place where anybody thinks that, that the value is going to come from. 
you know, the hospitals, they're contracting with multiple health plans and they have a lot of varied benefit designs for patients. So the implementation is definitely going to be complex. Yeah, and, and it, it, it is interesting that we're just saying hospitals. So, you know, knowing of the evolution to the ambulatory setting in so many ways, um, it's interesting to me that why stop at hospitals? Why wouldn't we want to post costs for, you know, routine or common procedures in a provider's office, which is a little more visible for patients anyway? And if we want Medicare members to be savvier consumers and, and gain more literacy, then, then price transparency will likely need to go outside of the four walls of the hospital and into physician offices. Right. And I was thinking the other day, when you go to an urgent care clinic, you actually get an estimate of what the, uh, the cost may be. Prior to even going into the exam room, um, they'll do a quick, you know, assessment to say, okay, your your estimated, you know, cost is going to be a range, mm -hmm. which is actually a starting point. I mean, maybe it's not perfect, um, but it does provide some information before you go in there. So it allows you to make some decision as to whether you want to continue with the the treatment. Yeah, it's a huge uh, shift in, in the urgent care population of uh, that has happened. And it's really interesting to me. There, there's also something else hidden behind the headline news about the meaningful use. And it's the new proposal, newly proposed hospital payment rule, which includes the possibility of more stringent federal requirements that would force providers to actually share data to participate in uh, Medicare and Medicaid. And that would include and involve revising um, conditions of participation, which would allow the CMS to leverage some of that regulatory power and, and offer a clear-cut business case for, for the idea of interoperability. And technology is a huge focus of the problem of interoperability, but there are a lot of silos that exist between providers and physicians and patients that are not technological in nature and may not have a solution that is as simple as getting the data in the same format and opening uh, like database exchanges. It, it's really about process and understanding of how patients and providers and uh, hospital systems actually interact with each other throughout the journey. I think a lot of that focus is going to happen and be solved outside of a technology. Realm. Yeah. And I think, you know, what's interesting to me is that CMS, I think, understands that there is some complexity and some controversial aspects to these proposals, which is why they are issuing requests for information um, so that they can better understand what some of these proposals around price transparency issues actually are and, and what exists. What's interesting, though, in terms of the proposal itself is if you, you read through it, there definitely seems to be more sticks in the proposal rather than carrots, uh, so that there's. I always have to rethink that that thought. Yeah. Okay, more sticks than carrots. So less incentive and more of a penalty if you ah, don't do it. Thank you. So digging into this whole idea of promoting interoperability program, I mean, providers who fail to adhere to the measures would not only absorb a three percent downward payment adjustment, which is was. It's not good, right? You don't want to be penalized in terms of your reimbursement amount. But if CMS really decides to move forward and revise the conditions of participation, which we don't talk about a lot in it's the healthcare first time, industry. It's the first time we've talked about it in this whole season. This thing's like gold, though. Yeah. I mean, it is is something, it's a, a, a regulatory power that CMS has that is pretty important because it significantly raises the stakes by 
basically allowing CMS to dictate whether hospitals could actually participate in the federal programs if they refused to share data. I mean, think about that. So it's not just a penalty on reimbursement. It's either you're in or you're out of Medicaid and Medicare if you don't participate. I think this would be a huge deal. And for CMS, it it really is this valuable policy lever that could be used, I think, to almost bust the resistance that we've seen um, among hospitals and health systems when it comes to data sharing. So, you know, switching gears, I want to talk a little bit more about some other aspects of what was in the proposal. So let's chat a little bit about Medicare Advantage. Uh, This was a banner year in 2017 for Medicare Advantage plan enrollment. And a first glance at 2018 shows really steady growth of enrollment over original Medicare. CMS, just by all intents, seems to be really focusing on driving the growth in Medicare Advantage by increasing things like flexibility and even broadening the types of benefits that can be offered by plans that are going to be in the MA space. So Ryan, when you looked at the the CMS final rule when it came to Medicare Advantage, what were your thoughts on it? Well, you know, we talked a little bit about this in my parting thought if you in the last or past uh, podcast. So right. this is really exciting to me. And um, it, it takes me back to kind of the overriding question about health. What what are we doing this all for, right? What is this for? We always talk about the cost of the healthcare curve or what some of the incentives are, but it's really about trying to keep people healthier. And I think this move that happened in April was was a real good step in that direction. Under the final rules, under the final rule, CMS is allowing Medicare Advantage, Advantage plans to offer a range of supplemental benefits starting in 2019, um, ranging from things like healthier food to transportation services, if it might help keep a member out of the hospital, meaning those things can now be or will now be reimbursed. It's a huge shift. Um, It seems like it's part of an overall shift, hopefully, in healthcare that we begin to start to recognize the social determinants of health and how they play an approach, how they play a role holistically, and what I said earlier, keeping people healthier and treating the right thing. Yeah, I thought it was really an interesting um, pivot in terms of the broadening of the benefit and the fact that social determinants of health, we've slowly started to see it be incorporated in the industry, but I was I was really um, delightfully surprised, Yeah, actually. I think we were all shocked by that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think CMS is also giving Medicare Advantage health plans a bump, right, in their payment rates. And now enrollees and providers also have an easier path to actually signing up for Medicare Advantage. So it used to be you have to sign up for original Medicare. And then once you did that, you signed up for Medicare Advantage. Now it's like a direct route, right, like, yeah. right into to Medicare Advantage. Um, so essentially, when we think about this, we will have two different Medicare programs running almost independent of one another. And as people begin to what we call age into Medicare, I think the Medicare Advantage plans may have an advantage over original Medicare since these plans are kind of wrapped up all in one, you know, the way they're packaged and the way that they are actually delivered to a consumer. They offer a lot of convenience there is a significant amount of choice um, in terms of consumers being able to select which plan best fits their needs. And now we're seeing that CMS is saying, you know what, we're going to even extend it further to say 
you know, health plans, if you want to participate in Medicare Advantage, there's going to be opportunities for you to create plans that are actually tailored to specific health conditions. So for instance, there could be plans, like especially in the special needs plans where we've seen this already, but like even more plans being designed for perhaps people with diabetes or other types of, you know, common um, chronic conditions. So it's it, personalizing. It almost, yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And I think that's really part of what's been interesting in this proposal is seeing how far CMS is trying to push um, or, or escalate Medicare Advantage. And the CMS is also taking additional steps to integrate Medicare Advantage into the Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization Act, or MACRA, and also the Quality Payment Program, QPP. This could really increase the number of clinicians who are able to use payment methods in Medicare Advantage plans that are certified as alternative payment models. This could help them meet the necessary payment or patient count thresholds required to avoid exposure to the MIPS program. The CMS seems to be trying to make Medicare Advantage more attractive to providers and potential enrollees. On to topic two. So FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb is all over the industry news laying out his plan for modernizing the FDA with some very ambitious goals ranging from addressing the opioid crisis to more rapid approvals and identifying methods to increase generic and biosimilar competition as a way to address the rising prescription drug prices. What are your thoughts so far on the activities at the FDA in the past year? Well, I'm glad we're switching. You know, we talk a lot about the CMS and we rarely, you know, talk about the FDA, but the FDA under Gottlieb is ramping up the need to balance uh, the idea of public health and the interests of public health a little more. And also what we think is respecting the science bring, being brought forward by the industry itself. And um, I think we've been very surprised with the number of evidence-based policies and the direction these policies are going on everything from drug pricing to the opioid pri uh, crisis um, that the FDA is actually discussing. And in keeping with this uh, evidence-based regulatory approach that Gottlieb is, is prioritizing, the FDA has also promised to tackle chronic diseases like obesity, like diabetes, two really uh, enormous public health challenges that we have seen. And what's so interesting to me, I mean, FDA traditionally hasn't put public away. health right at the forefront, and yet everything we've seen from FDA very consistently this year has had almost a lens on public health. I think kind of like cutting down the uh, days in the fishing season in Alaska. <laughs> right. Uh, did not, you would never think that the Alaskan uh, fishery regulatory body would have an impact on public health. And mm -hmm. maybe this is part of a broader trend we're seeing, as like Ryan mentioned, some of the other extraneous determinants of health actually having a tangible impact yeah. on public health writ large. That's, that's a really good point. And I almost feel like we're going back to where we were. We've talked a lot about home care health, going back mm -hmm. to the basics. The FDA used to do a lot of this stuff back in the 60s and 70s with serving sizes. And, and we've kind of gone away from that. So I'm really ex interested to see how this is going to progress. But, you know, we've seen them take several steps on this and, uh, and implementing regula regulation requiring things like restaurant and other food outlets with 20 or, four, 20 or more locations to even post calorie counts beginning of May this year. We've seen that done in other states, but this is a federally uh, mandated program. Mm -hmm. 
And when we talk about the FDA normally, it's usually in relation to the drug and device approval process that the FDA is in charge of. And Gottlieb really seems committed to improving competition in the drug market, making it easier for generics and biosimilars to come to market. And he recently called out branded pharma companies for making it difficult for generic manufacturers to procure samples of the branded product. I think in Gottlieb's FDA, pharma may find both a friend and a foe. And I think this is a really interesting example of trying to indirectly tamp down the price of healthcare. I think we've seen a lot of really high-profile stories over the past two years about the skyrocketing cost of prescription drugs or cancer treatments or various treatment modalities across the system. And he's not out, Scott Gottlieb is not out there saying we need to control the price of these drugs uh, outwardly, but by pulling some of these levers and making it easier for generics to complete, I think that may be an outcome that we see down the road. And last year, the FDA approved a thousand generics, and the agency really wants to make it easier to bring biosimilars, which are the generic analog for biologics, to the market. And some say that the 21st Century Cures Act paves the way for this to happen, but the budget support really isn't there for the FDA to invest in the right people and technologies to achieve rapid approvals of generics and biosimilars. Yeah, one thing Gottlieb did do recently, he was in front of Congress actually pushing this agenda and requesting more investment so that he can hit some of these goals that he set. One thing that's remained consistent, and I think, Mike, you definitely touched on this, is FDA still doesn't believe that it is in their purview to evaluate what we're calling the value or the price of a drug, but really still to focus on the science and allow the payer community to evaluate what the price point should be. However, FDA also seems to be ready to take on the middleman in the supply chain. So in speaking to, um, I think it was top health plan executives uh, earlier this year, Gottlieb actually stated to them that patients shouldn't face exorbitant out-of-pocket costs and pay money where the primary purpose is to help subsidize rebates paid to a long list of supply chain intermediaries. And so to me, it still isn't clear what FDA can or even, you know, in my mind, will do besides use public opportunities to try to influence changes to the drug rebate program and to at least weigh in on some of the perceived perverse incentive structures that exist. I think FDA is also really focusing on integrating the consumer into the agency. So in a previous podcast, Ryan, we were talking about uh, back in October when they actually held their first consumer feedback forum um, And it was really with the intent, right, to learn about consumer experiences during clinical trials. And the commissioner said that the agency is simply going to be very aggressive in um, making sure that they are incorporating consumer experience into what the FDA is doing and also warning consumers about products if necessary and, and really forcing products off the market if they deem them to be um, not in the public's best interest. At the same time, I think the FDA has also issued guidance on really further development of things like anti-addiction medicines. I mean, they're really kind of canvassing this whole public health aspect, and that's what's been so interesting to me. They seem to be trying to protect public health while also trying to find ways to reward the industry for some of their efforts. 
So I think it's always my role to kind of ask the big question, the big macro level question. And uh, the question here is, when we consider all this FDA and public health uh, movement, wh what does this mean to the healthcare industry? And it certainly feels like the FDA is approaching uh, with authenticity issues on a public health level with a public health lens. But I think we all agree that there's some regulatory matters that the FDA still should be prioritizing and addressing. And just some of those include the extent in which drug companies can market their products for off-label uses, or how much oversight is needed for, for the laboratory-developed tests that hospitals and physicians often use to detect conditions, you know, conditions ranging from heart disease to ovarian cancer. And as Mindy will tell you, it's a, that's a booming business. Um, and then some of the far-reaching decisions that we'll need to uh, that the FDA will need to address is the efforts taken to and we've talked about this in other podcasts the reduction of time for drug companies to develop new drugs these are several massive issues that that will affect the life sciences sector and we're just going to have to wait and see how they take shape and i think it's sufficient to say that between the CMS and FDA healthcare enterprises have a really considerable number of proposals policies and rules to prepare for today and for the future. Now for our parting thoughts. Hey Mike, why don't you kick us off? Sure, so I've read two articles that came out within I think 48 hours of each other around immunotherapy that I thought were fascinating. One was focused on how doctors are offering immunotherapy in a really sort of renegade fashion. They're offering them to patients who don't really have a lot, other, a lot of other treatment options at their disposal and that would be effective at the state of their disease progression. And these immunotherapies may not work on that individual patient. I mean, we don't have the, the huge amount of evidence of what, in what situations they work, for what populations they work, and how they, how they best work while reducing side effects. We don't have a lot of that. And we there the biggest issue is a lot of these times these drugs can work miracles for people who may not have had any chance to extend life or any chance for a normal quality of life as as they deal with a disease so it's just a really interesting conundrum that doctors are facing to to figure out when to use these and like when is it worth a hail mary of immunotherapy and then the second was really a little bit related to this is how these drugs are priced or usually they're extremely expensive and i think anytime you talk about drugs that have a, a high price tag you have to think about how effective they are and the combination of not being sure about the uh, the effectiveness on an individual patient because of the intricacies uh, and pathways of immunotherapy and combining with the high price tag i think it's going to be a really interesting but challenging part of the system over the next 10 or 15 years as these drugs become more numerous and we're treating older populations with them to find like the right balance between prescribing immunotherapy uh, and being sort of fiscally responsible and realistic about uh, the, the upside that that drug may bring. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to stick with the life sciences theme. So a recent IQVIA report indicates that generic drug spending actually declined in the U.S. by about $5.5 billion in 2017 after steady growth over the three years prior to that, pointing, I think, to the challenging generic drug dynamic mm -hmm. in the U.S. market. So volume share data on marketed biosimilars also um, have been impacted by health plan controls and some of the, the barricades that I guess health plans are putting up right now as they evaluate 
you know, just how much they're willing to provide access to some of these biosimilars. So what's interesting to me, right, is that the FDA has set these goals in trying to increase the number of generics and biosimilars in order to increase competition. But it's really kind of facing an uphill battle in terms of whether payers will actually cover the products and provide patients with access to those products. Uh, It's an interesting report. It has a lot of interesting data in it. So I would just recommend checking it out if you get an opportunity. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. I'm going to take it to uh, the sector that I feel most comfortable in, the provider sector. And it's really uh, germane to the topic we discussed today. And I read an article in the Black Book Market Research so that, that they do a lot of canvassing to physicians and clinicians. And they really ask a lot of questions around EHR interoperability and, and how doctors and physicians are feeling. And, you know, the big, the big number was that 36%, that's over a third of these folks that responded, and there were several thousand that responded, um, said that they struggle with the exchange of patient health records within EMRs and EHRs across the land, which, you know, you know, you're like, oh, it's less than, than half, but that's a significant amount of folks. And I think when you dig deeper into the survey, um, it's a little more daunting of, uh, it creates a more daunting opportunity. Something like 85% of network physicians believe the task of interoperability between healthcare providers um, and initiating and bringing in information from outside was was very difficult. So if we think about that, you know, part of having a longitudinal health record or having a complete picture of the patient really will require um, EHRs to capture availability and, and information from patients outside of the hospital system or the physician office. And a vast majority of folks are finding that very difficult to attain. And I think one point of reference is a lot of healthcare um, aficionados will probably say, well, there really is only a couple EHRs or EMR companies in the in the country these days, so that will change. But I would argue that even within the same EMR platform, it is still difficult to get information from one entity to another. So, you know, we talk about all the strides that we're making, um, you know, and changing the name to meaning from meaningful use to interoperability and how great that is. There's still a tough a road to climb when it comes to sharing information to get a better um, a better view of the patient. Yeah, but it sounds like CMS is really going to push that agenda, yes. like it or not. This concludes today's High Five podcast, and we want to hear from you about today's episode or other topics that may be on your mind. Please feel free to contact us at 267-930-4711 and share your message. For additional conversation about the work that we're doing in the healthcare industry or a deeper follow-up on how Vynamic may assist you with your business initiatives, please contact us at highfive@vynamic.com. And for links to anything that we talked about today, visit this episode's podcast description page. And until the next cast, have a great day.